0: Hello, I am Fabian Ahlefeld and I run the Additive Minds consulting team for EOS in North America. Welcome to Additive Snacks, last episode of Season 2, the podcast that inspires and educates you on your additive manufacturing journey. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Kerry Bauer, the Senior Manager of Polymer Technology at EOS. And today, we'll talk about the best ways to approach innovation with 3D printed polymers. The first rule of 3D printed polymers is that you'll need to rethink applications at the spec level. That's because part specifications and properties can be improved upon dramatically with additive manufacturing. And we'll talk about how in a second. But keep in mind that if you remain focused on legacy materials, specs and processes, you'll miss out on your best opportunities to innovate. That's why Carrie will talk about the big things to consider at the start of your polymer additive manufacturing journey. Including real-world requirements for your applications, which will determine the best materials, processes, and approach for your needs. You may even want to develop a unique material for your very own needs. And Carrie has a lot of experience he'll share about that as well. So let's dive right in. And remember, keep an open mind, as the ideal materials, processes, and features for your polymer applications are often entirely different than what you'd expect or what you're used to. Kerry, welcome to Additive Snack. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Kerry, today we're here to talk about polymer materials, and I would like to start with a general overview. Can you give us an understanding of what type of polymer materials are principal and which types are not?
1: Sure. Yeah, I think uh, what you need to know from a a general overview standpoint is there's there's different classifications of materials. And so I I first would define it into um, the chemistry of these materials um, via how they're how they're polymerized um, and how they respond uh, to stimulus. So I think think in additive manufacturing anyway, there's two general um, materials. One is a thermoset and one is a thermoplastic Uh, and. What a thermoset is is essentially it starts out as a resin um, material, and it is uh, it is uh, printed via the application of light. Most commonly, um, it could also be it could also be cured via heat. Often, but uh, in terms of three D printing, um, it usually um, we use some sort of light, whether that's a laser or a, um, a projected image of some sort. And so, a thermoset essentially is a is a resin that is being polymerized during the additive manufacturing process Now, uh, thermoplastic is a material uh, is a polymer that already is polymerized um, that we're utilizing in some form whether it's a a powder um, or whether it's a um, you know a filament of some sort and we're essentially centering it or melting it into a shape that we want and so uh, one is a starts out as a monomeric or a ligomeric material and becomes a polymer during the process which is a thermoset and one already is a polymer that we're manipulating via via melting um, into a sheet and these two these two materials uh, really or these two uh, types of polymers really define how you have to print
0: them right okay that makes that makes a lot of sense and uh, can you give us an example of a typical Polymer material that maybe the audience is familiar with that is either not principle or especially good principle
1: uh, Sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, the most common principle um, Polymer material from a, a sintering perspective Or uh, not is the range of nylons that that we um, that we use and the reason this is um, Is because they just happen to be very ideal for the process that we're using so they they have a, a melt temperature that we can work with that's that's roughly under two, uh, you know, sub 200 C. Um, and there's a there's a differentiation between the melt temp and the crystallization temperature, which gives us a, a processing window that we could work with. Actually, the the, the very first laser sintering material was a nylon um, because it was already a product in the market in the form of a powder coating. So they would they would make um, these nylons into powders and they would spray them onto surfaces and they would melt them and they would uniformly melt. Turns out that process actually requires some of the same melt flow properties and other properties that we need for laser centering. So that's how kind of, um, you know, the, the industry first started using nylons years ago. Um, some, you know, an example of something that is not very printable, at least via laser centering is rubbers. Um, something that's already completely uh, polymerized and it's also completely cross-linked. Um, and so this is a, a material that really cannot melt flow and you can't really do much with it to manipulate it into a um, into a three-dimensional object.
0: Okay, and what can I use instead, instead of rubber? Uh, yeah,
1: so so we employ a number of thermoplastic elastomers, um, so TPUs uh, or TPEs. Um, and what these essentially are is they're, they're blockchain polymers which have a rubber component to them and then they also have a more processable component which allows the melt flowing and things that we need to to center them into into place, and so um, by combining those two properties, we can we can leverage the um, the properties of ru- uh, rubber like material, but also allow them to be processable in a way that we can utilize them. And, and uh, we have a number of, of TPU's and TBEs that we've that we've um, you know in recent years released based on this type of chemistry and material science.
0: Okay, that, that's really good to know. So in the end, as far as I understand now we need to be able to look a bit outside of the box when it comes to additive manufacturing, right? You just mentioned that not every material is printable, even though it is uh, processable in, uh, in especially conventional manufacturing methods. Now, if I'm an engineer out there and I want to look at additive manufacturing as a way to manufacture my current application, either because I've identified a good business case for it or because I want to print certain geometries, that may not be able to, to manufacture, that I cannot manufacture through conventional manufacturing technologies. How do I approach and identify a material for my application?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think when considering a, a new material or a new application in general in additive manufacturing, start with the requirements of your application. So, um, you know, I think it it really comes down to understanding the minimum property requirements of of what you're trying to meet um in your application and translating that to something that you know or to a product that that you know is is available or is becoming available on the market and so you know so many times we get caught up on uh, a customer using a specific polymer um I'll use The common example we have is is a a pa6 because pa6s have been in the market for a really long time and are really industrially used especially in automotive um uh, across the board right and um you know typically we'll we'll come and we'll get asked um do you have a, a pa6 that we can use to swap out for what we already have you know qualified for pa6 internally um and even if the answer is yes You know, the material may be similar in name, but even a PA6 that's typically injection molded to a PA6 that we offer uh, is very, very different because we have to have a different uh, molecular weight, a different melt flow. Um, These materials are not one to one in terms of chemistry, even within the same chemistry set. You know, even if the material has the same name, it's not the same material. And so, Really, the most effective way to target new applications um, in laser centering is by really um, having an openness and an understanding that your specification might have to change to accommodate a new material. Um, and start by understanding what the true requirements of your applications are and looking for a material that maybe doesn't have the same name but meets the minimum requirements of that application.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, in the end, leveraging additive manufacturing to its fullest extent i think we need to be able to match the material properties to the application now we've talked uh, a lot in the past and we we work uh, together a lot let's dive a little bit deeper into the material engineering uh, side of additive manufacturing now you talked about uh, nylons a little bit you talked about uh, soft materials what are can you give us an overview of all the base polymers that uh, can be applied to additive manufacturing, at least to uh, uh, selective laser sintering technologies? And can you also give us a better understanding of what types of fillers and changes and tweaks we can do to these materials in order to adjust them to meet our requirements of our applications and to really uh, provide that perfect match of application requirements and material properties?
1: Sure, yeah. So so let me start back from where we were um, talking just a moment ago. So, you know, when, when you're looking at the, the range of materials that are uh, being used in industries across the board for polymers, it's a, it's a huge range, right? And so um, there's thousands and thousands of, of different polymers and different molecular weights, different structures, things like that, that laser centering is never going to be able to print every single polymer that's out there now. Um, the way that we you know, the way that I think we we typically try to differentiate our, uh, our portfolio within a certain number of polymers that we have is by using utilizing fillers that allow us to, you know, bring some speciality to these materials for certain applications. And so um, I, I'll just start with, with your first question here of, um, you know, what are some of the base polymers that we employ? Uh, well, I already mentioned that you know, we we do um, specialize in nylon materials. Um, probably nylon 12 is our, our volume wise, our most popular um, base material. Um, we also offer nylon 11. The difference between those two, um, the names are different because of the chemistry. So the, the, the chain structure of those polymers are different and they're polymerized in different ways. But what they are uh, material property wise is nylon 11 is actually a bit more ductile a bit softer has a higher elongation of break than nylon 12 but is not quite as rigid as nylon 12 so depending on what you really you know are needing if you need you know more of a, a slightly more flexible material that can maybe accommodate more vibration things like that you go with the nylon 11 over nylon 12. um so so those two materials are really the base of a lot of our our, our composite materials that we build from those um you know we're we're also in the process of releasing a new polypropylene material that offers, um, I think, you know, some some better advantages in terms of uh, uh, in terms of softness and prototyping for polypropylene-focused applications. So there's a lot going on there. Um, I, I mentioned also our TPU materials um, that are that are you know really really starting to gain traction. Um, no pun intended in the footwear industry. Um, also in in a lot of the custom uh helmet and protective um gear uh industry you know the these materials are really really specific towards the structure right so you can completely change the way that they act depending on the lattice structure depending on the wall thickness of, of something you're building they can even they can either be fairly dense and rigid or they can be very soft and energy uh, absorbing and things like that and so we're almost just really starting to dig deeper and deeper into this um, this soft material space because it's a, a really open toolbox, right? And so it's, it's very customer and application specific. Then, you know, we, um, we get further into some of the more high performance polymers that we have um, that I think are more popular in, in aerospace applications and higher, higher value applications, which, um, you know, are largely based on PEKK materials um and we have some some carbon fiber um, composites there that are that are used for duct work and used for other things. Um, some components require ESD um, performance, things like that um, that need to be printed on almost the three hundred degree Celsius range, and so they're they're a bit more um, they're a bit more um, I think. Uh, more difficult to print and more costly but they are also filling more you know i think more uh, well defined applications in aerospace and some in automotive for lightweighting for structural improvement things like that so um so you know we have this with this range of materials that we use um, to build to build the the base of our material data sets and our material offerings then we look into actually what we're filling these materials with that include things like carbon fibers. Um, they include It includes aluminum particles. If we want something that's denser, we want something that can maybe conduct electricity, uh, a range of other fibers, glass fibers, mineral fibers, that really accomplish very specific things, whether we want it to be you know, lightweight or dense, whether we want it to be a, a, a high mechanical or a high tensile strength material, or we want it to be higher elongation at break. Um, you know, and finally, um, a lot of the applications we look into are are flame uh, need to be flame retardant too. So we we offer a range of flame retardant uh, proper uh, materials that are essentially us integrating specific flame retardant components into a base polymer to make it to help it pass flame tests and and uh, things like that.
0: Okay. Okay. Super interesting. Can you take us through an example where? You had an ad- application need. There was no pre existing material uh, or material combination in place, and you engineered a, mater- a material towards this application. Do you have an example in place that you can talk about? And uh, can you give us uh, the end result of uh, that material development project?
1: Sure. Yeah. I, we have, I think we have several within a, a specific space um, that. That I, I won't go too far into the details about you know the the customer or anything like that, but they're they all follow a very similar path that we have, right? And so, okay, um, you know the the general process is um, aligning with our customers upfront as to what the what the have to have performance uh, indicators are for this their material. So um, I think recently we've had several examples with with several customers uh, in the. In the aerospace field of, of them coming to us and saying, okay, um, you know, we, we really want to get into laser centering because we see the the value it adds. We have a couple components that we immediately know there's a business case for, for transferring some of our existing parts over um, with the longer term of designing for you know for additive in the future. But many customers enter additive manufacturing by actually converting existing parts first. With the roadmap later of of you know designing specifically for the process right and so um, so you know what's really I think in the, the most important way to start is is really level setting up front is what the the minimum have to have properties are for a new material um, in and rarely honestly if you're talking um, in a highly regulated um industry, rarely do we have a material that meets every single checkbox that they that they need. Um, you know, if it's not already something that they're buying and that they're already a customer for. Right. So um so so we essentially take those properties, we screen our materials that are relevant to them from a base polymer standpoint. Um and then we design um you know um often we'll design a, a an experimental process with our customers uh, that's that's somewhat iterative of determining the optimal composition for their needs so uh, more recently we've had um, some customers come come to us and say hey we need a, a material that's going to be in a high vibration environment um, it, it can't be that stiff because it'll fracture um, and mm-hmm, there's specific mm-hmm. numbers to these things but I'm just talking generally um, and so we you know from that we we down selected okay we have a um, a specific nylon 11 we need to use because it needs to be a, it's going to be in a high vibration environment and needs to have a little bit of um you know flexibility to the part so it can survive those types of things they also gave us the challenge of saying well you know this needs to be able to absorb shock um be able you know to um, handle the types of environments that something uh, in the air would have to handle which also includes esd you know which is dissipating any type of shock that it gets within the um within the structures around it um so that it's not you know causing a fire or something like that. So we had to make the the material ESD and also there's a flame retardant component to that too. So if there's a fire in the cabin, um it has to be you know helping to put that out or at least not um, causing any sort of secondary fires and things. And so um, we went to work on the a composition that had multiple um you know uh multiple structures inside of a polymer uh, uh, multiple um, additives and things like that and from there we you know it's it's essentially a um, an optimization process of what is the trade offs between the the components that you're integrating into a polymer and what are the what's the optimal process um, from a laser centering standpoint to get your maximum properties while also retaining the feature definition so this is a fairly um, you know um, a roadmap that or a process that we're fairly comfortable with because we've done it quite a few times successfully, all the way from a customer talking to us about their requirements, us making a custom product, uh, us helping to um, you know, finalize the process and actually transferring the process to the customer and hand-holding until it's through the the qualific- internal qualification processes that they have on their manufacturing site.
0: Awesome, thanks. That's a really good example. And I think it also shows that even though there is already a quite large material portfolio out there for additive manufacturing, don't get discouraged if your material properties that you are trying to achieve aren't represented by a standard material. Additive manufacturing allows you to tweak materials and uh, create new compositions that really match the, in often cases, high performance or unique performance requirements of of parts. Yeah, and uh, I think one, do-
1: one, other, one other note on that is, um, you know, in most cases where there's a successful new custom product for a a, you know, a new application or for re- replacing an existing one, there was some, some flexibility on the specification because in the past, often specifications will be written around an available material, right? So if there's a specific grade of material that's being molded or machined, uh, usually the spec is written around what's already available. Well, the most successful way to drive additive into replacing some of those antiquated parts and 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 antiquated manufacturing processes is being able to take another realistic look at okay, you know uh, maybe we can overachieve on on some of the areas um, and maybe we're underachieving on some others. What do we actually need? What do we really know about our application? Opposed to what we just wrote in because that's what was available before, right? And so, in you know. Always, the customers that are willing to take a deep look into why their specifications are written the way they are and how can they be changed to accommodate a new material; those are the ones that are successful in in transferring or or in, you know integrating a new process and a new uh, product into their line.
0: Yeah, totally. And that accounts for material requirements, of course, as you mentioned, but also from my experience, to uh, to design specs. Right? Do, uh, is are the tolerances that are written in the specifications actually required, or are they just based on a conventional manufacturing technology that has been used before? Now, totally. you you earlier mentioned uh, a very important topic too, and that is a qualification, uh, especially for those restricted industries, but also for for less restrictive industries to uh, reduce uh, reduce scrap. What are some variables that I, as an engineer, need to be aware of? that allow me to control consistency and reproducibility of an out-of-manufacturing process and the output that I generate.
1: Yeah, sure. And so, so like you said, um, quality as we push, as the industry really pushes further from, you know, further into a typical manufacturing process that you'll see on a in a production line, um, we are more and more being tasked with um, understanding the variables that we can control understanding the variables that we can monitor and understanding what we cannot control Um, and and wrapping that into uh, quality control documentation and processes that that really really result in a robust and consistent manufacturing process Uh, and 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 by doing that you essentially um, are able to define your, your boundaries, right? For for what's acceptable and what isn't and how to control that. Um, and so, you know, getting a little technical here um, from a powder quality management um, perspective, um, there's, there's several things that go into maintaining a, a, a process um, that is, you know, um, consistent and uh, predictable. And I think one thing is if you're looking at, you know, a polymer powder. Your your melt flow is one of the most important variables that you have. So essentially, um, laser sintering is not a pressurized process. Um, you know, it's 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 done in in atmospheric pressure. And so when a the laser comes and it hits the polymer, um, we rely on that polymer's ability to flow um, into, you know, flow into a solid melt pool as we're printing. Uh, We rely on that ability to give us the quality of build that we have. So if you have a powder that does not flow when it melts, essentially it just, all of the particles just stick together, the clump, right? And what happens there is you, you're building a part that has a lot of internal free volume and you're not getting the high density that you need of a part, the full density of melt that you need. And you'll see that on your mechanical properties. You'll see, you know, very, very, um, you know, much worse elongation of break when you go and do your your tensile coupons and things, your witness coupons. Um, and you'll see other effects of that, you know, via whether it's build failure or other things. And so so the first thing to understand is is maintaining a um, a melt flow within a, a certain range. And so a lot of our um, you know processes and how we qualify internally our own batches of materials, we have very defined melt flow ranges saying, okay, um, it has to be within this value, um, to be an acceptable product that we're, we're putting onto the market. Um, and the other, you know, one of the other aspects is the actual size of the powder. Um, interestingly, if you have a powder that is, um, every single powder uh, piece, uh, or, or powder sphere is the same exact size. That gives you a worse, um, actually worse properties and worse infill than if you have a um, essentially a normalized distribution of, of um, particles. And so, um, the powder science in terms of shape and size is actually um, pretty interesting um, in terms of idealizing what the sizes, the shapes, and the distribution are for for you know powder flow. Um basically, which allows it to go from the bins in our printer down to the part bed. That flow is important because if your powder does not flow well, um it you'll see, you know, clumping, you'll see inconsistent recoding, things like that. Um, but also the ability to pack in your bed and print consistently. And so um, you know, from a um from a print quality standpoint, not only is what the melt flow that I talked about important, but also the shape and the size of the powder and it the Powder flow itself um, in being able to get down to the the bed, and so um, you know when we're producing powders, when we're when we're doing experimental studies like I just talked about, um, you know, for specific customers or products, um, these are some of the things that we really you know monitor very closely because they can um, be game changers on whether a a product is actually going to be successful in the market or not. you know from our perspective, we have to design these um, these processes to be very robust because we're sending a powder to a customer. We have to have specific instructions to how to handle that powder, how to recycle that powder to maintain a um, you maintain a consistent um, flow, melt flow, powder flow, things like that throughout the manufacturing process. So the way we would help control that on the end site is um, by defining a powder, you know a powder refresh ratio. So Uh, For example, for a typical nylon, we know that from a build, you could take 50% of the the powder um, that's left over from that build, and you would need 50% of virgin powder and mix those. And by doing that, you're maintaining the critical levels of melt flow and powder flow that you need. And there's a a lot of other, um, you know, thermal processing considerations too. Um, You know, as your powder gets older, if you're not controlling, um, you know, those, those ratios, right? You're not con- controlling how you're treating the powder and sieving the powder, things like that. Your melt peaks can change and things like that, that, that change ultimately how you have to process the ma- material. So really a big, you know, a big part of laser centering is not just developing the process, it's documenting the process and, um, you know, um, having all of those boundaries um, built out so that, that um, the end use customer is able to um, use this without any change in process, without any change in material properties as they build.
0: Yeah, 100%. And that, of course, is, is one of the key reasons why additive manufacturing is pushing into serial manufacturing. Uh, thanks to the work that you do and uh, also many other uh, polymer material development organizations that really open up a new space for, for application. And talking about that new space of applications, if we look a little bit more into the into the future now, what are some applications that will will be unlocked by additive manufacturing? And do you also see future material categories being unlocked that are not unlocked today due to various reasons?
1: Sure. Yeah. I think there's a, a couple areas that you know particularly excite me right now when I'm looking at, you know, new applications or new frontiers that are being pushed in the in the industry. Um, I think one that that really is exciting, um, that's maybe not new, but is is there's a lot of progress being made now is metal replacement within you know especially within aero and auto structures because um, you know essentially what's driving um, you know the replacement of some metal components into to printed polymer components is you know every year or not every year, but but frequently we see new requirements for a fuel efficiency um, you know safety things like that that are all driving you know these OEMs to look at how do we reduce the weight of our of our systems while maintaining the efficiency safety while maintaining the um, you know the performance that we need and so um, there's a large effort right now that's going into, um, looking at every component we can look, see, you know, from a traditional metal part in a, for example, uh, years ago, a couple years ago, now we did an armrest. Uh, we looked at with a customer, we looked at a traditional aerospace, uh, an airplane armrest. This was just made of, of some sheet metal components, plus some internal metal components that, that gave it some strength. Um, we were able to, you know, use one of our high performance polymers, P-E-K-K based. Um, to build the similar a similar structure that was actually able to lightweight the armrest significantly while maintaining the strength it needed. Um, so by by leveraging the 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 lower density of a polymer system plus the ability ability to build specific strengthening points and you know higher reinforcement points in a structure we were able to maintain the strength while reducing the mass internal mass significantly. So there was a density difference of the material, but there's also, we, we ended up using much less mass just to make the part in general. And this, you know, this um, ultimately led to a reduction, I think of roughly 50% in weight. Um, These types of applications and examples are across the board right now of people looking at, okay, we need to, um, you know, maybe reduce the overall weight of a, a, an automobile by a hundred pounds, right? And so they're they're div- they're looking component by component into what can be changed to to um, achieve this. And it's all about maintaining performance while reducing that weight and reducing the um, the density of parts and things. And so um, that's where some of our higher performance materials, like I mentioned, PEKK, are coming in because we're able to maintain some of that strength um, while also looking at, and leveraging. The ability to build custom lattice structures and custom strength and structures um, that take into account the areas that need to be reinforced. Um, okay. So that's one area. Um, the other, I think, that is is really very active for us is um, mass customization of parts. And and I mentioned this a little bit earlier with with our soft materials, um, but but we're really seeing quite a bit, um, you know, of creativity around especially user scanned applications. So. Um for example, I think it's pretty well known we're working with a company called Hexer that is building helmets, custom helmets largely for biking um, uh, applications. What they'll do is they'll they'll put they actually put a um, they put a uh, a cap on the person's head and there's, I think a hundred thousand data points taken and this is used to generate a, a custom a honeycomb structure helmet, um, which is overlaid uh, you know, with another outer protective, uh, gear. And what this does actually is this open structure gives it much better breathability. Um, you know, if you've ever used one of those old, cheap uh, baseball helmets or, or football helmets, you know that one of the biggest problems is you sweat like crazy in there because it's just foam and it's sticking to your head. You know, it's terrible. And so, one of the cool things is being able to, um, you know, to really um, hone in on this specific. Um, internal structure that really fits your head well, um, while also, you know, being lighter, being more breathable, ultimately being more effective in, in safety too, because um, there's less rattling around and it's a, a better fit for your specific head. So there's there's so many examples of this, not just in the helmet space, but, um, you know, we're, we've also for a couple of years now, I've been working with a company called Atrex that is taking user-specific pressure um, profiles of people's feet. They stand on a mat and it, and it translates a pressure profile to a specific structure that we print um, that then translates that to how to support their feet better and give them better posture or help reduce pain, things like that. Um, that's happening you know, with shin guards, that's happening with um, orthotics. That same concept is being leveraged um, with soft materials, with our nylon materials, and it's really leading to um, a much more custom product. Often, it's being also leveraged into distributed manufacturing, so it's it's closer to the customer and faster turnaround times too. Um, plus, more you know, just focused on their specific profile. So, I really, um, you know, I really am excited about that because it, it seems to be that the business model of doing that has is, is made great strides in the last couple of years. Um, and. And customers are willing, you know, often to pay a little bit more for that too, because the performance is there and the lifetime is there. I think for for those products, so that it pays off in the long run.
0: Yeah, what a what a great outlook. And I think as you can you can hear now, whether if you're in the automotive industry, in the aerospace industry, if you're in the consumer industry, or if you're just simply somebody who likes to ride your your bike and you need a better better fitting helmet, additive manufacturing has already and will impact your life and your work uh, in the future. And to summarize what what Kerry just described in the past uh, minutes is that, number one, really identify the key requirements for your application. It's so important to think a little bit outside of the box and understand, are these requirements here because the application requires this, or are they here because of legacy? And if they are here because of legacy, be open to redefining the specs. Be open to also look into other existing materials that additive manufacturing offers, where Kerry mentioned a huge range of nylon-based materials, of soft materials, TPU, TPE, uh, polypropylenes, all the way into high-performance materials, such as uh, PEKK. All of these can leveraged and or be customized for your specific application. And last but not least, I think one very important takeaway from what Kerry just said is to understand the additive manufacturing technology in depth. Understand why particle size distribution, material and melt flow are so important to achieve your specific additive manufacturing properties and your application properties. So Kerry, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and insights with us. And uh, yeah, again, thank you. And uh, thanks for being on Additive Snack. Great to be here, thanks very much. So the big takeaways from today's episode are to separate your legacy thinking from your Polymer AM strategy. The first step is to understand Polymer AM materials in depth, including things that will affect build quality and consistency, such as met flow, particle size distribution, and so on. And the future materials that will help you reach new heights. Start with the key requirements for your application and embrace the new opportunities AM polymers can bring to your parts and products. It could mean mass customization. It could mean replacing metal components with equally resilient polymer alternatives. It could even mean developing new materials for your needs. Those are the things that can help make you an innovator in your industry. And with the right AM strategy, you can make it happen. I'd like to thank Kerry for joining us today. And if your company is more focused on metal AM applications, be sure to listen to our previous episode with Dr. Ankit Saharan. Just as Kerry did today, Ankit offered best practices and things to avoid when deciding on the best AM metal materials for your application. Is there an AM topic you'd like me to cover on a future episode? If so, please send us an email at additive.snack at eos-na.com. We're always looking for great topics that will keep you tuning in. And your feedback is always welcome. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate us in your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back soon with season three, where we've got some really exciting guests, stories, and insights lined up just for you. So stay tuned, and I'll see you there at another great episode of Additive Snack. A special thanks goes out to my co-producers, Kristen Eisminger and Tim Moynihan as well as to Shannon Bauch for Graphic Design and Social Media Management.